Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that as we have just sung, your word is living light upon our darkened eyes. It guards us through temptations. It makes the simple wise. We thank you that your word is food for us famished ones. It's freedom for the slave and it's riches for the needy soul. So we pray now, come speak to us today and show us more of Christ. For his name's sake we pray. Amen. Confirmations. Confirmations can be such a great assurance in times of uncertainty, can't they? A few years ago, I was booked onto a flight to get me back to college in the UK. I'd been here in Malaysia for a few weeks on a, uh, on a short trip, and I had to get back onto this flight to get home to sit a very important exam back at seminary. But a week before I was due to fly out, a volcano exploded in Iceland. You probably remember it. And this huge ash plume rose over the entire United Kingdom. All flights to London were grounded. Things got even more tense when I was told that those who had their flights cancelled due to this natural disaster would be put onto a waiting list. If my flight was cancelled, I couldn't just get the next one. No, they would already be full. The wait was going to be about two to three weeks. So I wasn't just facing the possibility of missing one exam, but all of my exams for the end of the academic year. I faced the possibility of having to resit an entire semester, six months worth of study, because a volcano exploded in Iceland. So those few days were quite troubling. I was anxiously checking the airline website every hour I was awake. And the day of the flight came, morning, still no go. Afternoon, oh, it's improving, still no go. And that evening, when I was due to fly out, finally, we received a confirmation. Conditions are okay. We were cleared for departure. <sighs> Massive relief for me. I could now do at least 13 hours of revision on the plane before sitting my exam the following morning. You know, it's such a relief in troubling times, in times of great stress and anxiety, to get some kind of confirmation that things are going to be okay. Well, last week in Mark 8, we left Jesus' disciples in a troubled state. Peter had identified Jesus as the Christ, the promised Saviour King. But the very next minute, this same Jesus had started to explain that as this great king, he would suffer and die. And that was a hard saying for the disciples to hear. Jesus closed last week with this promise he made to them in 9 verse 1. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The kingdom that Jesus, the king, had come to establish. But no doubt the disciples wondered, well, what kind of kingdom had this King Jesus come to establish? If he himself as the king would suffer and die at the hands of his enemies. The disciples' hopes in him at this stage were greatly shaken. 
You know, was this great man that they had left everything to follow really God's promised king? Was he the real deal? Or was he just another false hope? Well, now we come, Mark 9, to Jesus' transfiguration, an event that would confirm the hopes of the disciples, these hopes they had in Jesus, but also work to correct them as well. We're going to start looking at the first half of this section under the title, Confirmation. Jesus is the King. He is the King. And we're going to see this truth develop in three stages over the transfiguration that we have before us. In its place and power, the prophets that we see appear, and then the presence of God the Father himself. So let's start in verse 2. So we look at the place and power of the transfiguration. Now, if I were to mention the numbers 9-11, just in general conversation to you, say after the service, we're just drinking tea, and I say 9-11, what would you think I mean? Am I talking about mental arithmetic? Or the emergency service numbers of the United States of America? No, of course not. You know, just by hearing those numbers... For us in today's society, we'd know exactly what I was referring to straight away. 9-11. Tim is talking about the attack on the Twin Towers in New York on September the 11th, 2001. 9-11. You just have to say those numbers today in conversation and people know what you mean. Well, for Marx readers, who knew their Old Testaments really well, when they started to read of the transfiguration, it would have conjured up powerful images of their own history as the Jews. Come with me to verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now let me show you Exodus 24, verses 12 to 13 and verse 16. Where we read, it's on the screen. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait here that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. Mark's readers know This event, this transfiguration of Jesus, has already started to echo the Exodus. When God first worked to save his people Israel to himself, bringing them out of slavery to Egypt, under Moses to Mount Sinai, what we read of here, and then on to the land of his blessing. Well, let's see how it continues. Come back to Mark 9, second half of verse 2. And Jesus was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Jesus is transfigured. So that both his body and his clothing becomes intensely bright. Just like that. Now look at Exodus 34, 29 to 30. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. 
Moses shone at Mount Sinai from being in the presence of God, that first exodus. And here, Mark tells us Jesus, having gone up a mount, is transfigured in dazzling white. Only his experience is greater, much greater. It was just Moses' face that glowed white back then, but here Jesus' whole person, all his clothes, become intensely bright. You know, there's only one other, one other person in Scripture described like that. We read in Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Now, the brightness of Jesus' whole body here infers that he is the Lord. He is the God of Israel himself. Come to his people. Now, this would have got Mark's Jewish readers very excited. They knew what happened after that first exodus all those years ago. You know, Israel, they were a stubborn, rebellious people. When God tested them time again, they refused to honor him time and again. So instead of experiencing God's promised rest under him, they experienced his curse. They were exiled from the land God had given them to experience his rest, sent back into slavery under foreign masters. And yet in the midst of that terrible judgment, there was still a continual promise of hope. You see what God speaks through the prophet Ezekiel during the time of the exile, when God's people are going back into slavery. Ezekiel 34, 11-13, God says, As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. God promised for Ezekiel he himself would come to his people and work to deliver them into the place of his rest. And now here we have Jesus on the mount with his disciples, transfigured in blinding bright light, echoing the power, the place of the first exodus, only just so much greater this time. His transfiguration shouts to us, Jesus is God. Jesus is the one who has come to redeem his people. He is the one who will bring them into the rest that God promised. Let me to verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now look at the prophets of Jesus' transfiguration, two of the most revered figures in all the Old Testament, regarded as representatives of all the law and the prophets. You know, they were the symbol of the Old Testament promises of God. And yet notice, it is they who come into Jesus' presence. He is still superior, well above them. You know, Moses and Elijah, they're not shiny white like Jesus here. No, they appear only so that they can bear witness to him in his glory. To show again how the promises God made through these men, these prophets, would be fulfilled in him. And Peter, having seen Moses and Elijah appear, decides to speak up as the orphan loves to do. Verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, 
he was terrified. In fear and astonishment, Peter just blunders totally. You know, despite what he's seeing right before his eyes, he starts by calling the glorified Jesus Rabbi. You know, that's like calling Barack Obama a civil servant in the American government or Andy Murray a part-time tennis coach. It's true, but he's so much more than that. Sorry, I had to get Andy Murray in there somehow. Jesus could be described as a rabbi. Yes, he was a religious teacher during his earthly ministry, but he's been shown here as something so much greater than that. And then Peter just blunders again. He offers to build three tents. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Rabbi Jesus. He's seeing this event upside down. He thinks that Jesus is being elevated to the great stature of these two famous Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah. He hasn't understood that these men have appeared to bear witness to Jesus and to further glorify him. Peter, thankfully, isn't left in his embarrassment for too long, but then God the Father himself makes his presence known. Verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Stop your babbling, Peter. This is my beloved Son. Jesus alone is worthy of praise and honor here. He alone is the Son of God, the one who those Old Testament prophets like Moses and Elijah were pointing forward to in their ministries. You know, Isaiah, another prophet, he would speak of a, the future hope for God's people of restoration. And then he would refer to this promised son in Isaiah 9 verse 6. As one whose government would be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God's son, the promised Saviour King, would achieve an everlasting rest for those in Israel who would take refuge in him. That's what was promised. And as the Father confirms, Jesus is this beloved Son that they're seeing in all his glory now. He tells the disciples, listen to him. Verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with him but Jesus only. You know, Moses has spoken of a day back in that first Exodus when God would raise up a prophet from amongst his people, and they were to listen to him. And now Moses and Elijah have both faded into the darkness again, and they're gone. Jesus alone remains on the mount with his disciples. They are to listen to him. Friends, this account, as incredible as it is, is confirmation. For the disciples, for Mark's readers, for us. Jesus is the real deal. The disciples need not lose hope. He is the one all of God's Old Testament promises would be fulfilled by. He is the Son, God's Saviour King, who would bring about the ultimate exodus for his people. He is God come as man to serve and save sinners like us. Not just those of Israel. Not just the Jews who those promises were made to. No, Jesus came to achieve that ultimate exodus to deliver people from all nations to the presence of the God we were made to know and love and enjoy. 
through his death at that cross on Calvary, he would make it possible for you and for me to be freed from slavery to sin. From that which keeps us from knowing the God we were made to know. Saved from the judgment that we deserved for rejecting God as the Lord of our lives. Jesus would destroy the power of sin and death in his own body by dying the death that we deserve for our sin and then rising again to new life, returning to the glory of his Father as our risen Saviour King, his glory that we see just a glimpse of here. So as we trust in him and him alone, we can enjoy the blessing of God's rule and a promised rest with him. Friends, do you recognize this Jesus who Mark is giving us here? You know, in our age, in our society, it is just so easy to relativize him to something lesser. I asked my friends back at uni, what do you make of Jesus? Some of the answers they would give. A wise teacher. You know, his wisdom can help us out in a crisis. A moral champion. He can show us how to be the best we can be. A guide for those who feel lost and depressed. He's there to get us back up on our feet. None of those stereotypes do justice to Jesus. He is God's Son, come to save us sinners and rule us as our King. To bring us out of the darkness of despair and back to the God who made us to know Him. Is that the Jesus you know? Is that the Jesus that we claim to follow? Or like Peter, you know, are we blundering? Do we fail to recognize him in his greatness? Just treating him as one of many equals. Someone that we'll turn to for security when it suits us, but otherwise ignore as God's king for our lives. Friends, be warned. One day he's going to return as this glorious king to establish his kingdom in all its fullness. And all of us are going to have to bow the knee to him on that day. For those of us who have resisted Jesus as God's King, rejected the rescue that he offers to us at the cross, well, such people will be cast out into utter darkness and despair. Jesus warns us of that. Unable to enter the rest God promises to those who would take refuge in him. Friends, don't be one of them. Don't be one of those people. Do what the Father tells the disciples to do here. Listen to Jesus now. Take refuge in him now. Not when it's too late. What about for those of us who have recognized Jesus? Well, we are to keep on listening. We're to keep on listening to him, even when his words are hard for us to hear. You know, the disciples, they had just received hard words. Jesus would suffer and die as their king. They they couldn't understand that, as we'll see in a bit. But that doesn't mean they were to stop listening. They were to continue to listen and trust in Jesus' words, not their own foolish judgment, not their own wisdom. You know, there are so many voices out there that want to influence our lives. You know, just this week, my wife brought to my attention an article She had come across in a magazine aimed at young women here in Malaysia. And it basically said, girls, don't worry if your partner looks at porn. 
Don't worry. He's just satisfying one of his carnal desires. It doesn't mean he's being unfaithful. He's just doing what he needs to do. A popular Malaysian magazine aimed at young women. Jesus says every man who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Our materialistic culture says the lie that we'll only be happy when we have all of those things we don't yet have. That car, that house, all the mod cons to go with it. Jesus says no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's impossible. Whose voice is directing your steps today? Controlling your attitudes, your desires, your dreams. Jesus says if we are his sheep, we will recognize his voice and follow him. We show he is our king by treasuring his word and delighting in it over all the other voices out there that would destroy us in sin. As we'll see in a moment, Peter, James and John were still quite hard of hearing. They have received this incredible confirmation, Jesus is the king. And they still need much correction on what it meant for him to be their king. Brings us on to our second half, correction. Jesus is the king who will suffer before his glory. What the disciples had just witnessed, his glory, and yet their minds are still fixated on him becoming this great earthly Messiah. Come to triumph over his enemies, set up his kingdom there and then in Jerusalem, and reign forever. How tempting it would have been for the disciples, having just seen Jesus in his glory. How tempting it would have been for Peter on this post-transfiguration high, to hail about a cry and gather the people of Israel together in Galilee and revolt against the Romans, storm the capital and enthrone Jesus as their glorious king. But Jesus had already said to them that at this time he will go to Jerusalem not to reign, but to suffer, to be rejected and to be killed at the hands of his enemies. That was his mission. So as they descend the mountain, Jesus doesn't waste any time bringing them back down to earth. Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Jesus knew that his disciples couldn't appreciate what it meant for him to be the Lord of glory until after he had suffered on the cross and risen again. It's just too much for them. They knew this Son of Man that he speaks of here to be this one that the Old Testament predicted would inherit all authority from God the Father to rule the nations under him. Why should this same Son of Man, who they believed all the more now to be Jesus, having seen him in his glory, Why should he have to rise from the dead? Jesus is again implying, I will die to his disciples. 
So verse 10, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And more literally there, the Greek reads where it says they kept the matter to themselves, they seized Jesus' words. They snatched them because they wanted to conceal this painful truth that Jesus must die and rise again. They're embarrassed about it. To them it's like a PR nightmare. Jesus, be quiet, don't talk that way. They don't want this horrible rumor to get out. And it's not long before they start to gently test Jesus about it. They ask him this loaded question in verse 11. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? They're referring to Malachi 4, what we had in our Old Testament reading. Speaking of the day of the Lord's judgment, how God had promised he would rescue his people as he judged the wicked and set things right once for all. And just before that takes place, we read in Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's how the disciples saw their future, their salvation that God had promised. Elijah comes, then God comes and puts everything right there and then. And they've just seen Jesus in his glory, God with them. So where's Elijah? So they're asking. And implicitly, they're saying to Jesus, why all this talk of suffering and death, which is nowhere to be seen in Malachi 4? And Jesus knows where they're going with their question. So he responds to gently correct their expectations of him. Verse 12, he said to them, well, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Just as Malachi 4 had promised, Elijah would in a sense return His ministry would be one of restoration before the day of God's coming salvation and judgment. But Jesus knows that his disciples are still fixated on just one aspect of God's promised rescue for them. So he challenges them. Rest of verse 12. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things? and be treated with contempt. Jesus links here the Son of Man that we read of in Daniel, this triumphant, glorious figure who would receive all authority from God with the suffering servants that we know from Isaiah. One who was despised and rejected by men, not glorious, who would bear the griefs and sorrows of his people, be pierced for their transgressions, crushed for their iniquities. Isaiah 53, verse 5. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus is saying to his disciples, if Elijah comes and then fulfills his ministry of restoration, and then God's judgment immediately takes place and puts everything right there and then, then why those prophecies? Why the Old Testament words about the servant of the Lord who would suffer so greatly to save his people? Jesus is saying, you cannot take Malachi 4 without Isaiah 53. That's what the disciples wanted to do. They wanted the glory. They didn't want to hear about the suffering. They saw God's coming salvation as one glorious event. 
with no pain involved. When in reality, God's salvation involved Jesus, His Son, coming first as the servant of the Lord who would suffer for many to redeem us by His blood and then be exalted to glory for a time. A time in which we're still living as His church. Still living in this fallen world of sin and death. As we, His people, look forward to His second coming in glory. What Malachi 4 is pointing forward to. When as the Son of Man, He will come back to bring in that final judgment. He will judge the nations. He will save His people to Himself forever as the glorious Son of God. The disciples, they believed God's coming kingdom would only mean triumph. It would only mean glory and greatness. That suffering and pain just couldn't be associated with it. And yet that was exactly the path that Jesus knew as their Messiah He had to take to redeem His people to establish that kingdom. And just to make it clear, Jesus has this final word, as it were, a knockdown blow for them as they walk down the mountain to show that those who, suffer, who follow him will suffer too. Verse 13, he mentions Elijah again. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it's written of him. The Elijah the disciples asked Jesus about earlier had actually already arrived. But not in a glorious fashion, not triumphantly. He was considered an outcast by many. John the Baptist came onto the scene back in Mark chapter 1, wearing camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, eating a diet of locusts and wild honey, identifying him with Elijah, who's described exactly that way before. John's ministry was to bring Israel to a state of repentance, to call them to confess their sins and be baptized in the River Jordan so that they could identify with what their coming Messiah would do, redeem them, save them, just as God saved their forefathers through the waters of the Red Sea. John conducted his ministry faithfully so that he would get glory? No. So much so that it cost him his life. We read in Mark 6, John challenged King Herod over his adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. He pleaded with Herod to repent. wouldn't keep quiet, even when it put himself at great risk. And Herod continued to resist. Kept John around for a time because he was interested in what he was saying, but he wouldn't repent. And in the end, Herodias, his wife, tricked him into having John the Baptist beheaded because she hated what John had to say about their conduct. That wasn't the kind of Elijah that the disciples had in mind. But as one who lost his life for honouring the coming Christ, he was a very appropriate pre-runner for Jesus, the Christ himself, the suffering servant who would die to save many from their sins, as John had witnessed. The disciples' expectations needed some serious correction. They had to learn that taking Jesus as their king, like John did, would mean glory eventually, but it would mean much hardship and suffering before that glory with him. And that is the same, that is true for us as well, friends. To live for Jesus now 
will mean hardship. Don't believe anyone who would tell you otherwise. Friends, if we never face any troubles for our faith of any kind, if we're never taking any hits in this world for Jesus, we better make sure whose side we're actually on. Because right now, we're living in enemy territory. In a world set against our Lord, which will persecute those who wish to follow him. You know, refusing bribes can be pretty tough in our society, can't it? There's a girl I know who grew up here, and it took her many, many, many attempts to pass her driving test. Something she needed to do to get a job, to do her shopping, to just generally get by. And she was failing her test, not because she was a bad driver, but because she wouldn't pay the bribe. Not because she's self-righteous. She knows that Jesus is her righteousness. That Jesus has taken her sin because she's trusting in Him. But because she's trusting in Him, she doesn't want to live in sin anymore. She loves Jesus now. Not her sin. Not the wicked ways of the world. She treasures Jesus and the future glory that she will share with him as she honors him now. And so she's willing to suffer, whether it be small inconveniences or great burdens, wherever necessary, to show that she is one of Jesus' sheep. Friends, I promise you, following Jesus faithfully will mean that sooner or later we will face persecutions. Just as John the Baptist did, preparing the way for the Messiah, who would then suffer so greatly for us. And yet the great news is, for those who belong to Jesus, that's not the end of the story. You know, seeing Jesus transfigured in his glory would become such a great encouragement for his disciples, for Peter in particular, as they suffered for his sakes after the cross, after Jesus had ascended into glory, because in the transfiguration, they were able to see their future with Jesus just for a moment. To see what was to come after the suffering, after the trials. Jesus reigning in glory to secure us, his people, his kingdom, for everlasting life in his Father's presence. Friends, when you're bearing up under a trial, for Jesus' sake, and it's getting really tiring. You just want to give up. It's so hard. I encourage you, look forward. See what the disciples saw here that we read of in Mark 9. A glimpse of Jesus in his glory that we will one day share with him. When he will return to judge justly, to right every wrong, as God's promised King. And take us, his followers, those who have remained faithful to him, to be with him and enjoy him in his Father's presence for all eternity, where there will be no more suffering or crying or pain or death, because that old order of things, what we're experiencing now, will have passed away. God will make all things new. Friends, Keep looking forward to that day this week.
And so persevere in loving and serving Jesus, whatever the cost, and trusting in his cross when we fail. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for giving us this incredible account of your Son, our Saviour Jesus Christ and his glory, this confirmation of who he is, and this great encouragement of what we have to look forward to after the sufferings and the trials and the pain that we endure for him now. We pray that you would help us to be mindful of Jesus in his glory that we have to look forward to when the sufferings come, when the trials come. Help us to stand firm, to delight in him as the saviour of our souls and look forward to that eternal rest that he alone has brought. So Lord, help us to remain faithful to him this week and to continue depending on him, whatever the cost. For his name's sake we pray. Amen.